Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're in a series, if you're visiting with us this morning, that I've entitled, Didn't See It Coming. Today's the fourth in that series, and it's entitled, Unexpected Mercy, which George Floyd would have loved to have been the recipient of this week. Many of you are familiar with that name because of uh, constant news feeds about what's taking place, and possibly, um, rightfully so. This morning was to have been the start of a three-part series within this series on racism. But I talked to Raymond Tuesday morning early, uh, and I said, you know, uh, the preparation for this still needs a little bit more work uh, before we launch that even, and I've got this week's to work on, so uh, let's postpone that one week. Little did I know that later that afternoon, the incident with Mr. George Floyd would take place. I think most of you have heard by now that he was allegedly passing a $20 bill. We don't know that for sure. I may not ever know that. And he was uh, taken down by some police officers. And one particular police officer put his knee and his neck on the ground. And um, he protested saying, I can't breathe. And no one paid attention to that. Within seven minutes, that man was dead. And the repercussions of that are still rolling throughout our country. I'm not here to comment about those repercussions, right or wrong. Uh, but I do want to talk about what's underlying those repercussions for about three weeks. And there's a lot of things as a church I think we need to look into the Word to see what God has to say about the racism that still very, very, very much exists in our country. And so I'm asking for your prayers. Not going to be an easy uh, sermons, a set of sermons to prepare for or to even preach. But right now... My emphasis is on the Floyd family. And my emphasis is also on officers all over this country because anytime one of these incidents has happened, and they've happened too much, um, you've got good cops who get a bad reputation and a bad rap for what they do every day in an incredible way, right along with any good doctors, right along with any good preachers. Anytime one of us does something really, let me just say it's stupid, it's a reflection on all of us. And so I just want to say this about what I've said so far. That's not a reflection on cops in general. It's just a reflection on some cops that really have gone too far with their authority. And so we want to pray this morning for this preacher who's going to be preaching for you guys the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, and also for the Floyd family and for Christians everywhere that we would act like Christ would have us act in response to any event like this. Let's pray. Lord, Our hearts go out to the Floyd family who have not just watched news feeds. They've experienced a loss, a very tragic, unjust loss. And we don't know all the details yet, but what we saw in a video um, says a lot. And so we're asking this morning that you are with that family, that you're with the justice system to bring to justice what took place there that day in every way that it needs to be handled. Um, but right now, Father, we're asking for comfort and for peace. And as a church, we're asking for uh, your wisdom and discernment as we look at this issue which needs to be addressed in our family here. Uh, not just because of these events, we were going to be talking about this anyway, but because of the presence of racism that's still very, very much a part of our country, of our state, of our city, of our schools, and even, forgive us God, in our churches. And so we're asking you to please help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what we need to hear from you. Um, our prayer also this morning is with the Notre Dame Catholic Church. 
they are on the front lines of helping so many people right now with um, utilities they can't pay, uh, medicines they can't afford, uh, rents that they can't afford. And uh, it's stunning the amount of dollars that flow out of their ministry every single month to do that. We've come alongside them to help and want to continue to do that with the disciples that you've called there to be just like Jesus. Knit our hearts together so that together this world over, if anybody looks to see what unity looks like, all they have to do is look at the church. We confess right now that's not true. It's just not. But we are asking, would you please knit our hearts together in a way that it would be true. You promised it would tell the world that your son came and it mattered. And we trust that that's true. So please help unify us. In Christ's name we pray and everyone said. Thanks to COVID-19, it has been an interesting time in our country, in my life personally, most likely in yours, in many, many ways. And so I want to kind of change the tone of how we introed this to a little bit lighter note because I, I figured that most likely our social media uh, would be involved in capturing some of the lighter moments of what's taken place in um, this time of uh, social distancing especially. And a couple of those I pulled off the Internet and wanted to share with you. This is one I love. Uh, this particular fellow is in Minnesota. He is a computer programmer and is working from home and just saw that, you know, I think our squirrels could do better than what they're doing. And he put together those little mini picnic tables. Can you see those? And, uh, and now they're dining a lot finer than they were before COVID-19 came. And I don't know if he's going to make millions on Amazon or not, but I'd probably buy one of those. I'm one of those guilty. Next slide. This one is of a young man whose brother had way too much time on his hands and say, hey, I can make you look like Grandpa. And so he got out the shears and cut his hair. And we decided in the first service we were going to call that the Don Barnett. Everybody agree? Here we go. Next slide. This one came to me the very first week of COVID-19 from a friend down in Catula, Texas, and I thought this was right on target. She said, first time in history that we can save the human race by living in front of the TV and doing nothing. Let's not mess this up. <laughs> and a lot of you have tried very in, a, in a very wholehearted way not to mess that up, right? Well, last one. Next slide. This one involves two boys whose mom put their pictures up on the net, and there's uh, um, Ryan and um, Kevin. Uh, Ryan is eight, Kevin's five. And they were having a little trouble with too much social distancing or sheltering in place because they were getting on each other's nerves. Uh, they were at each other's throats, actually, is what mom said. And so she punished them and, you know, thought maybe it was a little bit too harsh, and so she came back and said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going we're gonna to do a breakfast that you'll love in the morning, pancakes and eggs. And so they got up the next day. They're coming down the stairs, and this is going to be a shock to some of your parents. They were actually arguing about who was going to get the first pancake. I know that's a stunner. And so mom steps in with what she thought was a brilliant statement. She said, you know, if Jesus was here, he would make sure you got the first pancake. Total silence. Until the older brother Kevin said, um, Ryan, you get to be Jesus today. <laughs> now, some in the first service, you can hear the next wave of laughter coming here. Some in the first service still didn't get that after, after we were done. They were asking me about that. That's me. That's why I tell that story. So many times I find ways to work what I want in the name of Jesus rather than working what Jesus needs in the lives of other people. We see this in a classic way in John chapter 8 today. We're going to look at a story 
where potentially we can place, I think, ourselves in one of three categories. I've been, hear me clearly, in all three. Let's see where you can identify yourself most and probably best. In John chapter 8, verse 1, here's what John says. Jesus was teaching at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down to teach them. Let me hit pause button there. Let me give you a little background before we go a little bit further about this teaching moment in the life of Christ. He'd been in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, a fun, fun feast. Of all the feasts, I think I would have loved to have been a part of this one. Uh, For an entire week, the nation of Israel had been sleeping in tents, trying to remind themselves of how God had provided for their ancestors during the Exodus' desert experience. And so I want you to picture this. Thousands upon thousands of people, literally probably feet apart as they place their tents, sleeping everywhere. And I just want to ask, do you think things might get a little tense in that kind of environment after a week? Maybe that's what was behind a group of religious leaders who were on edge when John writes this. As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and the law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Now I want you to know, before John gives Jesus' answer, he comments on the reason why these people have come. It was not because of their great respect for the sanctity of marriage. It was not because of their anger over a friend who had been cheated on. It was not in an attempt to honor the law of God. Now this woman's a pawn. This woman is a puppet in some power play for which they hope to make Jesus look small and them look large. Here's what John says. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I'm just going to say, I don't know where this shamed woman was placed in the crowd in front of Jesus. But if I had to make a guess, I'm thinking she's lying in the dirt. They're not going to want to hold on to an unclean woman, most likely very scantily dressed. She's probably in the dirt. Is that the reason why Jesus stooped down to ride in the dirt? I don't know. But I do want you to note this. Jesus is instantly associating with the woman that's being judged, not with the men who are doing the judging. And while he's down on her level, I want you to notice, he begins to write in the sand, and John uses a Greek word that's very distinct. He uses the word katagrapho, which literally means to write against. Now here's the meaning that I think is in that. Jesus is writing for this woman who's down there in the dirt against these men who are standing in judgment over her, and he's literally putting himself between a rock and a hard place, between a sinful woman and self-righteous men, and that is not an easy place to be for anybody. Now, I want to show you a document next that some of you may have seen, but probably most of you have not. I hadn't seen it before this week. It's called the Codex Leicester. It's a 72-page bound book in a single book, and it houses the thoughts and theories of none other than Leonardo da Vinci. Now, in 1994, Bill Gates bought this little book for $32 million. Now, insurers today say it's probably worth between $50 and $60 million, but graphic historians say without a doubt it is the most expensive piece of writing on the planet today. 
Now, here's my question. But is it the most valuable? I think there's a difference between expensive and valuable. And I think for this woman who is in a situation she could have never seen coming in her life, that whatever Jesus is writing in that dirt has significant value in her life. I'd like to know what he wrote. There's been a lot of guys who, and women who have tried to conjecture what that might be. But some have said that the names of the men who are holding rocks in their hand are the names that he's writing there in the dirt. Paul, David, John. And maybe alongside their names, they've conjectured, he's writing the secret sins they've committed that they don't want anybody else to know about. David, adultery. Paul, swindled neighbor. John, blasphemed. We'll never know. Truth is. But I am grateful for John's eyewitness account recording Jesus' effort to divert attention away from this woman who's been shamed and is in a bad spot to him. A teacher that's in a tough spot, but he still would rather have the attention on him. John 8, verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. And so Jesus stood up again and he said, All right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped back down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they started slipping away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was the only one left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? To which she said, no, Lord, not one. Jesus said, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Wow. She didn't see that one coming either. In the time remaining, I want to make three simple but practical observations from this story, especially to our graduating seniors. And I hope that they offer some key principles to help you write the next chapter in your life because you're going to be the one writing most of the chapters now. Here's the first one. Jesus leads with grace, but he always lands with truth. Jesus leads with grace, but he lands with truth. Now the crowd of men make it clear that they've, they've shown up to dish out for this woman a combination of humiliation and condemnation. Jesus makes it clear he wants to dish out a healthy combination of grace and truth. Notice what he says here. I don't condemn you. That's grace, isn't it? And then the second thing is this. Go and sin no more. That's truth. Now what's interesting I see here is in one story Jesus has defined for us love, hadn't he? Grace plus truth equals love. Man, that's how I want to be loved. By Gail, by Troy, by this church family. I want to be loved with lots of grace. But I also want to be loved with truth. That's love. I know when I mess up. I do. <laughs> if anybody knows it, I know. And when I've done something wrong, and when I've said something wrong, can I tell you what I need in my life? I find comfort in God's grace. But I need His counsel. I desperately need both of those things. I need him to lead with grace in my life, but also need his truth. But here's what I've also learned about myself. I need one before the other. Last year I shared a story with you about a confidence that I violated 
when my youth minister back in um, Rodoso and his wife were leaving, they asked me to keep that quiet, and I didn't. I shared that with a group of ministers that was, what's said here stays here. You know how that works? didn't stay there. Beth came up to me to talk to me about it, and I wanted to share with you how she did this. She came up to me and she started by saying, I need to share something with you that may be hard to hear, but before I do, I want you to know a couple of things. Number one, we will be friends when we're done, and I've already forgiven you. Well, she had my full attention (laughs) about whatever this was. She said, but you've done something that's damaged my trust in you, and that's going to take some time to heal. She said, you must have shared with someone about our leaving because I heard about it at school yesterday, and you're the only one that I've told, and Mark really doesn't associate with anybody in our school. She said, that hurt me. And I said, I am so sorry. She said, I already told you that I forgive you. And I said, well, thanks for that, but I want you to know I'm grateful for, first of all, you coming to me. (laughs) And I'm grateful for the grace that you extended me long before you spoke the truth about me. And you know what? We're still friends, better friends than even in that moment. Because that's what grace plus truth can do in a real relationship. Amen? That's why we all want that. And in a sense, I want you to see, she hugged me before she ever helped me. She offered comfort to me before she offered any counsel. She led, like Jesus, with grace before she spoke truth into my life. Don't you want to be loved like that? Well, Jesus is asking you to love like that. This man's name on the screen is Jim O'Neill. He was flying a Cessna aircraft recently when he noticed that his vision was becoming impaired. As a matter of fact, he'd had a mini-stroke. And that stroke was so severe that he almost lost his complete sight within 10 minutes. Flying an airplane, 14,000 feet in the air, and you can't see where you're going. Wow. Well, he made a call for Mayday, and a pilot by the name of Paul Girard heard that Mayday. And he flew within 500 feet of him and said, I'll help coach you down. He said, now to start with, you're going to have to put out of your your headset all of the voices that you've been hearing and listen to me. And I'll do the best that I can to get you to ground safely. Well, after eight, count them, eight different attempts to do that, he did. And here's a picture of the two after Jim made it to the ground safely. I tell you that story because I know for some of you, what you've been suffering the last couple of months has nothing to do with the mid-air problem. But for some of our seniors, both in college and those here in high school, it happened mid-semester. And and for many of them, it was just a frustration. But I'm telling you, for some, it's been a devastation. Uh, Some that have had to return from, you know, stunning places like uh, the Garrett's who had to come back from Europe. I mean, they may not get a chance to go back ever in their lives, but they were having a chance to go over there and do some education there, and they had to come back home. Had to leave a lot of friends there. There are some folks who are in their last year in high school and didn't get to play some spring baseball or some spring soccer or whatever. Might have gotten them a college scholarship somewhere based on how they performed. There are some who are in college, had spring sports that they were playing that could have gotten them a scholarship at a higher school. Not happening. Now, for the rest of you, some of this stuff has just been an absolute nightmare. And it has nothing to do with school. It has to do with um, uh, values of your portfolio that have gone down the tubes. 
It has to do with uh, some people that had to postpone some surgeries and have had to endure some pain because of that. Uh, I don't know what in the world, how that's made its way into your life, but I just want to say, God notices. And He wants to be a part of helping you fly your plane during this time in a way that maybe you felt like you were just doing blind. Now, That may be difficult in the midst of all the social media and news cycles that just keep repeating and repeating statistics and who's dying and all that's going on with that. And, you know, I need some of that information. But if I I lock into that too much, and my goodness, a little bit's almost too much, right? I quit hearing his voice. And like Wing Commander, Paul Gerard, I just want to say to you, you've got to tone out all of those voices except one. Because he's the only one who can fly this plane through this nonsense. He is. And get you to where you need to go, even maybe where you want to go. He will comfort first. And he will counsel second. He will lead with grace. And he will land with truth. And when he does, there's going to come the expectation of those of us who've received it to repeat the process with others. And rightfully, yes, a reason to expect that. So, that leads us to our second observation. Number one, do the best that you can. I don't have time to go back and look and find that in my notes. Second one, be a second chancer, not a stone thrower. All right? Oh, lead with grace. Land with the truth. Number two, be a second chancer, not a stone thrower. Man, I could camp out there for a no, just a couple of series of lessons there. Wow, I'm so quick to judgment, aren't you? I'm so quick to want to pick up a rock and throw it instead of lead with grace and then land with truth. Jesus is the only person in this story who had the right to pick up a rock and to throw it at anybody. And he doesn't even have one in his hand at all. So instead of adjusting our halos for this sermon, what I'm hoping is that we'll take them off. That we'll quit pretending that we're better than anybody else. Now, Christians are different. Man, because we've been saved by grace, we've been set free from the penalty of sin, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but we are not better than anybody. We're not. But we have been called to make sure that everybody has a chance at the opportunity of life that we've come to know and enjoy. This man's name is Sam Houston. Many of you like me remember studying him in Texas history. He is arguably one of the most colorful people in our country's past. He lived among the Cherokee Indians, and they loved him. And he loved them. Get this, he was elected governor in the state of Tennessee and in Texas. The only political person who's ever run for office to have lived in that office in two different states, governor in Texas, governor in Tennessee. He's the leader of the the folks that got back together after the Alamo. I don't know exactly what they call that little army, but they avenged the Alamo, and he was in the thick of it, not just leading from afar, right in the center of it. Has an impressive public record on many levels. But his private life was a train wreck. Married and divorced, married again and divorced, married again and divorced. A lot of other things I don't want to list about his life, but this one thing I do, later in his life he realized how much he needed Jesus. And in a river in Texas, he was being baptized by his preacher. And when he came up out of the water, the preacher said to Sam Houston, all of your sins have been washed away. And Sam Houston famously said, well then, God help the fish. 
Man, I hope all of us feel like that. You stand another person next to me that how I feel is it's going to take a whole lot more of Jesus' blood and the water of baptism to wash me clean than him. That's how Jesus wants to see each other. In that type of humility, when Jesus looked at this woman caught in adultery, he said, neither do I condemn you. He was essentially saying, there is more grace in God than there is sin in people. Oh, do I need to hear that. There's so much more grace in God than there is sin in people. Oh, church, never forget it. Pick a story from the Bible. David sleeping with Bathsheba, later trying to have her husband murdered and succeeding with that. Moses killing an Egyptian, as we looked at last week, then trying to cover that up, didn't stay covered up. Abraham lying about Sarah, being his sister when she was his wife, only to protect himself. God has never been intimidated, never been surprised by any of our sin. And that's why in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, wherever sins increase, I assure you, my grace abounds so much more. Paul, thrilled to know that for his own life, Write something in Galatians because, again, he says, if you've received the grace that big, you're going to be asked to share it in a big, big way too. So he writes this in Galatians. If someone falls into sin, you forgive them and restore them with a forgiving heart, saving your critical comments for yourself. Now, you might need forgiveness before the day's out, so you be the one who stoops down. and You be the one who reaches out to those who are oppressed, and you share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think that you are too good for that, you're badly deceived. Man, what a mission Jesus chose to come to this place and love us like that and to get what we gave him back in return. What a mission for him to come to this place and become something I was not. His righteousness. And in the process, he became something that he was not. My sin. What a trade. And again, when you make a trade like that, it comes with some expectations. So church, would you please be a second chancer and not just a stone thrower. Last observation. Now this one's more of a 30,000 feet observation, but I think it may be the most important of all three. When our battles get intense there is something that every single one of us needs to turn to. Often it's not the one that we turn to. But here's the third observation, that we worship a never and an every God. Do me a favor, say never. Just want to make sure you're awake, okay. Now say every. That's the type of God that we serve. That's the type of God we can worship if we choose to when the battles get intense. And I'm going to say this again to the seniors that are listening to me. If there's one clear thing that I see in this book from cover to cover is that there is an enemy who is going to try to destroy you as you step into this new chapter of your life. You don't believe that? Talk about some of the uh, seniors who were high school seniors last year who are now freshmen in college this year, and they'll tell you about some of the battles they've experienced this year in their first year on their own, writing their own story. He will come after you physically. He will come after you emotionally. He will come at you spiritually but he will come at you personally. Not just kind of in a world sense. He's going to come after you personally. You have God's word on that. Don't take mine. If there's a battle you're about to step into that he is going to be relentless in, regardless of how relentless you are in pursuing God, hear me, he's going to pursue you. And I just want to say that when those battles get intense, the biggest weapon you have, hear me clearly, is worship. 
That's why he hates you being here today. Going to this effort, maybe even a little bit of a danger to be here to worship with other folks. Because when you, when you sing with all your heart like you did a few moments ago, and when you break bread with your brothers and sisters like you're about to do, when you hear his word preached and you receive that into your heart and you allow it to touch that heart, when you say, there is no God like you, he notices. And so does Satan. As a matter of fact, Scripture says he runs. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Those are his promises to every single one of us. But I want to share them especially with the Christians here who are going to be seniors and stepping out on their own. Please hear me in obedience to Romans chapter 13, which I believe God wrote. I will submit to the authority of the president. I will submit to the authority of the governor. I will submit to the authority of the mayor in our town as much as I can and stay true to Christ. But my trust isn't in them. It's in God. I, I'm, I'm going to trust that there are some medical professionals right now sincerely trying to find an end to this uh, COVID-19 by, by researching a, a vaccine. And I'm grateful that they're doing that. And they're working in labs night and day to do that, a lot of them, because they just really want to see people well, not because of money. But you know what? My hope isn't in a vaccine. My hope is in Jesus Christ. That's where my hope is. When I go to verses to help me in, in times like this, not worry, but instead worship is Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22. When things are uncertain in my life, I need to stay close to things that are certain. And that's why I'm saying we have a never and an every God. And I know some of you are thinking, what does he mean by that? Lamentations 22 will help explain it. They came from a prophet by the name of Jeremiah who was standing in the rubble of Jerusalem. And to put an image in your mind, uh, I put these up on the board. These are images from Syria. When the Taliban went through with the, uh, their militant demands to have people uh, follow God like they wanted, they destroyed everything in their path because people couldn't do that, not, not be the evil that they wanted them to be. Here's another picture. Now, I show these to you because that's what Jeremiah was standing in. When he pens these words that I'm about to read to you, his family's gone, friends gone, uh, their jobs, their homes gone. And he pens these words. As he worships a God, he still trusts and still loves. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to again. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He says, I'm telling you, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Now, friends, we worship a God whose love never fails and is available to us every single morning. And this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, one day we're going to meet her. <laughs> Can't wait. And we're going to stand with her, and she's going to be singing right along with us. And when we get to the never, and we get to the every part of that, oh, my goodness, I hope that we sing as loudly as she does. Because times like this, can we be honest, kind of reveals where our, our trust and where our allegiance really is. And it's embarrassing. It has been for me in my life a little bit. Some days a lot of bit. Times like this show us where we're really dependent, where we're really putting our trust. And right now, for you, it might be in the stock market. For you, it might be in the government. For you, it might be in the educational system or one more stimulus check. It might be in sports. It might be in health. These things make great idols, but they make terrible gods. Terrible. 
Which is why I could never stand on this stage and say, our government's love for you never fails. Amen. I could never stand on this stage and say, the Dow Jones' compassion for you never ceases. Couldn't say that with a straight face because they don't care for you. They don't. Not the way that our God cares for you. But I can sing of a God's love that never ceases. I can sing of a God's mercies that are new every single morning. Because the truth is they are. Now, I hope we hear that. And it causes us to leave this place not living with rocks in our hands, but instead living with an incredible, insatiable, tenacious love in our hearts. And I promise you this, if we go out of here today and the world sees us doing that, they're going to say, wow, didn't see that coming. Because too often we talk this and we sing this, but we don't live it. Not in a sacrificial way. So that's what I'm calling you to because that's how you've been loved. Now, I can call you to that because we've got a God who takes these terrible moments like we see in this woman's life and turns them into incredible moments. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And we can do that because there is a tomb that's still empty. Regardless of what happens with this COVID virus, that tomb's still empty. And I've got to learn to live with that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. It's been a full day. And i um, grateful for the chance to see these seniors walk across the stage, get their Bibles, step out into a brand new pasture of their lives. And wow, what an exciting time. But also, Father, what a fearful time for some of us. Because we know as they start to write those chapters on their own, what a challenge. Because we know this enemy's real. We know you're real, but we know this enemy's real. And we forget about him a lot. And so when we make some mistakes, would you help us be brothers and sisters who lead with grace and then land with truth, who extend comfort first and then extend counsel later? You've loved us that way. And so we're asking you to please help us to leave here loving people that way. Thank you so much for uh, your incredible kindness. Please fill our lungs now as we sing these praises to you, full of truth, full of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, let's stand, church, let's sing.